Well, welcome this morning to everyone. This is a special edition of A Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Melanie C., a recovery compulsive overeater living in Canby, Oregon. And I'm deeply grateful for this opportunity to be of service today and greet all of you this morning. It's warmed my heart. Today is Sunday, November 13th, 2022. And the share ID numbers for our weekday Big Book Study meetings are the following. Friday, November 11th, 2022. The 7 a.m. Eastern Time Big Book Study is 19 632-19,632, and the share ID number for the 10 a.m. weekday Big Book Study Meeting is 19633-19,633. This morning, at A Vision for You presents Anger, the Dubious Luxury. By the time that many of us arrive in these rooms of 12-step recovery, we are quite deeply buried under the emotion of anger. It manifests itself in various ways. Some are familiar, some are not, and oftentimes difficult to admit or recognize for some of us. But it is there every inch. We're going to take a deep dive into anger today. In the 12-step rooms, we become intimately informed of resentment, i.e. anger. We are told that it is one of the number one offenders. A person mired in this emotion has scant chance of recovering from addiction. In our self-centeredness, we operate under the persistent, delusional, and dogged insistence that the world and everyone in it must conform to our desire. We become overwhelmed, angry, and indignant, and turn ourselves into victims when this persists too long, aggressively or passively, or even both, and we blame others refuse to take responsibility, and wallow in self-pity and fear, all of which are hallmarks of resentment. Anger is the impulse impact side to resentment. Anger is that sudden emotion that overcomes us when something goes wrong or we think something is going wrong. You know, someone cuts us off in traffic and we're immediately angry. Or someone is rude to us and our action is anger. Anger turns into resentment when we allow the anger to become persistent. If when we're cut off in traffic and we allow our anger to grow, so we take some sort of action that's destructive, like chasing down the offending driver, then we've moved into resentment. If when someone is rude, we let that anger simmer, so we're having fantasies of revenge, we're dealing with resentment. Anger is our mostly automatic response to that situation or anything other which is like it. We usually can't control the impulse of our anger. We are immediately out of our wise mind, our higher self, and overcome by the inability to process reality or reason with any good sense. It is just gone. The addict in us is running the show now. But we can control how we behave when anger strikes, Resentment slash anger really is a choice. It's a reactionary impulse that we've decided to make on some level or allowed ourselves to just stay angry because it feels self-righteous and right. The big book of Alcoholics Anonymous says, again, resentment is the number one offender. You'll find this on page 64. And with good reason. A resentment is always about someone or something that has done something somehow to us. A resentment keeps us feeling like a victim. 
These are exactly the sorts of feelings that build excuses for relapses. But take heart, however, because the big book teaches very clearly of a workaround and a true transformation in this area. We are going to hear of this true turnaround and the miracle of power that is found in the 12 steps this morning. Today on A Vision for You presents three very qualified panelists, as we all are, will share specific experiences such as aforementioned with anger and how it poisoned their spirit, affected their lives, their relationships, personality, and attitudes. Then they will share how this inventory process steps four through nine, that immediate clearing of the tsunami, step 10, that of anger, uh, rearranges our thinking, relieves us of uh, disturbances, and reconciles with us with God and our fellows and our friends. It takes us from being blocked to unblocked in the fellowship of the Spirit. A vision for you is grateful to these panelists today. They will be sharing quite a lot of their intimate details with us, and that's always a big stretch sometimes. The content of their discovery and the reconnection with power will be exceedingly beneficial and instructional. Our panelists today are longstanding, very, very active members of a Vision Free Big Book study and bring tremendous wisdom born of experience willingly today. A Vision for You relies so much on each of these people for that very reason. And they will present in this particular order. Nancy P. from Massachusetts, Leslie W. from Tennessee, and Nancy C. from Michigan. Each panelist will speak for about 12 to 15 minutes. And as typical for the Sunday special edition, we will offer each one that's in fellowship today an opportunity to ask each one questions this morning for more clarification for our study and our education. So with no further delay, I'm anxious to hear from each one of you. Help me welcome to the line our first speaker today. Good morning, Nancy P. from Massachusetts. Hi, hi Melanie. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hi, Melanie. Thank you so much. I feel like whoever wrote that intro stole all my thunder. I don't have anything to say, and with that, I'll pass. But um, no, that's not quite true, because my anger... Wait, let me just set my alarm here. Start. Okay. Um, my anger knew no bounds. I, <clears throat> that was my go-to place for everything. I, the most shameful um, memories that I have about my anger is my, the way that I treated my poor children when they were little. Sometimes I couldn't yell loud enough at them. You know, my, my daughter, my poor girl, you know, my son, the two of them, one or the other. And, um, and what happens when you do that is eventually people don't hear you when you just scream all the time. And um, I didn't get to that point, but I found myself yelling louder and louder just to get their attention. And, um, and it never helped. And to get to the, what the book says, I was just, I have my book here, and it says, um, if we were to live, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men, but for us, these things are poison. And so that's the thing. It says dubious. That means doubtful or questionable or of questionable value. But I somehow kept going back to it as my go-to place, my go-to thing to do, so that I would feel better. 
I wanted it to be cleansing, and it never was. It was always made me feel dirty and tired and ashamed. I was like the Incredible Hulk when he comes back to the regular guy. He's always like panting with the force of his rage, like exhausts him. That's how I felt. Only I, I was hulky. I stayed hulky because I was obese. And, um, you know, I abstinence only doesn't do it. My relationship with food had nothing to do with whether or not I got angry or how angry I got because my body often in the past almost 52 years in this program was often the right size. Well, not often, but sometimes it was the right size. And I would always be mad that I was angry. Like I'd be, why are you so mad? Why are you so enraged? Why are you being such a jerk? And then I'd be mad all over again. It was like layers and layers and layers of anger and rage and, and all that. And, you know, it could be from, like Melanie said, someone cut me off in traffic someone bumped me in the um in the grocery store with the cart or you know anything like that you know anything from that to when my mother had her stroke you know she was in this program and had excellent excellent recovery for 33 years then she had this stroke and she was completely debilitated and i went to see her and i said i'm mad at you that you had a stroke and she said uh i know what you mean she said i'm not too crazy about it either <laughs> and that didn't dissipate my anger. I was just mad all the time. It's just, and I lived like that. And, and you know, even, even when I, when I was, everything in my life was going well. Something would aggravate me, and I, you know, sometimes be in my car, screaming the Serenity Prayer, screaming it out loud, like Moses on the rock. He never got to go to Israel because he he broke up the Ten Commandments. I think that's like a biblical story. I seem to remember that. But anyways, you know, it never worked. And, you know, I have endless, you know, picking fights with people at, you know, I I always used to say, and I still do say this, I used to love nothing better than a good fight with a bank or an insurance company. And if I could make someone cry, that was icing on the cake. And, um, you know, I had, I had, had a 15 years I spent in this one career where I met with vendors and I was, I bought things and then I managed the project. I bought the service and I managed the project. Those poor people quaked in their boots. One guy that turned out to be my very good friend told me once that um, that he used to talk to himself to prepare himself to deal with me. And he that turned out later to be my, my dear, dear friend. And I was ashamed, but I couldn't stop that behavior. And um, I'm going to give you an example of something, you know, then I, so then, you know, fast forward, I, you know, my daughter, her cutting and her burning, I was howling with rage about that. I wanted to absorb her pain and I could not. And, um, and, and, you know, I often talk about, or I think about um, when I had to put um, antiseptic ointment on her own self-inflicted wounds, sobbing over her arms and her legs, and she would just stare at me. And and there was, you know, that was powerlessness because she didn't care. I mean, she cared, but she was in her own prison. And um, she didn't care how I felt or could not afford to um, do anything to help me, you know. And um, and that was that was awful. And, and she got much worse even from that. She was in and out of the hospital. I was getting called three times a week at work and, and you've got to come and get her. And, and I was enraged that she couldn't shake it off or that I couldn't help her, or that I couldn't shake her and get it off, or something. I just wanted some relief, and I couldn't, I couldn't get there. And, um, you know, I was, I was enraged that I ate 
a morning dozen donuts and I was enraged that I ate an afternoon dozen donuts. I ate and I raged and I was just, I lived in that space, yet I couldn't imagine. It was like I was living in a cave and I thought that was my whole reality. Then I come out of the cave and I see the sunlight and I, you know, weather and, you know, ocean or whatever. And I'm like, wow, it's pretty amazing. And that's how I feel today. I feel like I came out of this dark space where I thought I knew everything and and only to find out that I know nothing. And instead of saying, forget it, I'm going back into my cave because I feel like I know everything that's in there, I stayed out. I stayed, you know, out with, with the other people. And, you know, people hear me say this usually at the end of my talk, but I'm going to talk about it at the beginning. Um, you know, I surrendered. You know, no words can tell of the loneliness and despair I found in that bitter morass of self-pity. Quicksand stretched around me in all directions. I had met my match. I had been overwhelmed. Alcohol was my master. That's where I was when I called my dear friend who I've known for over 40 years. And I said, you know, I'm a failure. And the last in the conversation, the last thing that I said was torn out of me, like torn out violently. And I cannot stop eating. To say those words, <clears throat> excuse me, out loud for me is very painful because it, it, cuts down it cuts slashes my ego it slashes my you know my sense of self everything i don't want to be powerless i don't want to be i don't want to be out of control and you know i ask my sponsees this often like how's it going for you doing it your way and the answer is if you're talking to me not well and so finally i got to a place where i where i was you know just to get my attention i was i had to be at the absolute bottom darkest place in my life and I I got a sponsor who was, um, she, you know, we are not, I would not say that we're friends, but I love her because she's an excellent sponsor and she knows the book. And she took me through the book. And, you know, I talk about this often with people when we're approaching the fourth step that um, I think she's going to cut me off. I think she's going to kick me out. And I'm whispering in my room you know, with the door closed on the second floor with nobody there except me on the phone saying, I don't think this is going to work for me. And she said, why not? And I said, because because I'm not sure that I believe in God. And she blew me off. She said, oh, she said, well, you haven't had a spiritual awakening yet. So don't worry about it. And I thought, okay, she's the crazy one, but I'm going to do what she says because I'm still not eating. And that allowed me to relax and and keep my mind open to somehow chisel it open more. You know, it's like this rusty, like rusted locked thing that's closed and ivy grows over it and it's all, you know, rusted shut. And like somebody took a spiritual chisel and like slammed it open just to crack. But that idea that I, that I didn't know everything allowed me to pay attention and to just, you know, keep going. I say to people all the time, myself included, the only question that I have is when are we going to get to England? And the only answer is shut up and keep swimming. And that's what I did. I did my fourth step. I said it out loud. And, you know, in my fears, you know, I was afraid I was going to die. I was afraid my daughter was going to die. I was afraid my marriage was going to end. People, you know, people's children's children have died and they're married, they get a divorce or whatever. I was afraid of all that. And I, I get that resentment can be the number one offender, but I, my own personal experience is that, 
you know, the roots of it grow in fear. My fear was fertile soil for all my resentments to grow. And, and that's what I had to confront. And, you know, my sponsor said to me, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I did shed a few tears when I said all these things out loud. And, you know, and I said, and, okay, that's it. And she said, you know, she blew all that off. She said, do you notice any patterns? And I was like, no. And she said, well, I do. She said, everything that you're afraid of has either already happened or hasn't happened yet. And the only one, the stuff that's in the past, you can do nothing about. The stuff that's in the future, only God knows. Do you think you're God? And, you know, I say this to anyone who I've talked to on the phone about this, sorry. But, you know, there was a pause and I did admit, no, you know, no, I don't think that. And she said, that's right. You're not. So, you know, you know, we progressed. All that I can say is we progressed. And, you know, the fourth step is the wind up and the fifth step is the pitch because that made me other. It meant, that made somebody else know what, what was bothering me to in a way that, you know, any therapist or my husband or any anybody and my good friends that are not in program, somebody else knew and called me on my bluffs and said, these are not, these are boogeymen and you don't need to be afraid. And all I could do was keep going. And so then, you know, this book is gentle. They don't say, okay, get rid of them all. It says we ask, you know, first we say, are we ready? That's the sixth step, the pitch, the wind up rather. And then we ask, we, we take action. We ask, okay, take it away. Then the wind up again. I made a list of all the things that bugged me and pissed me off and all that. And, and then I, then I went and I, I made amends. And, and I will say that, especially to my family, especially, especially to my children, I did not use the word sorry or apologize in my amends. What I did was I said what I did. I said I was a yelling mother. I was a shrieking, screaming harpy. And in, in this situation, in that situation, that must have really hurt and been painful. And I want you to know I'm not going to do that again. And if, I, if you think I'm doing it, if you could help me, I would appreciate it. And, um, you know, with my husband slightly different because I didn't yell at him, but, you know, I was, I was a horrible partner in life, not horrible, but I was often unpredictable and violent, violent in my emotions. And, um, you know, he, his, 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 his worth, his caliber showed because he, he kind of blew it off too. He says, oh yeah, I'll see what I can do. (laughs) He's, He's an engineer, so, you know, everything is either a zero or a one. And so now it's changed from one to the other, and he's, he's fine with it. Um, and, and, and I did that. And then in the 10th step, you know, I kind of – I'm not a one who calls people to, um, to talk, say, I resent this, that, or the other, and, and here's what it affects like that. I don't really do that. I kind of – I read the 10th the the step um, as – you know, this thought brings us to, to step 10. What thought is that? Everything, the promise is a step nine. So, so far, there's no talking. You know, we continue to take personal inventory. I do that. We continue to say, write any new mistakes as we go along. Still no talking. We vigorously commence this, vigorously meaning necessary and very um, with energy, with this way of living as we cleaned up the past. So I continue to do this. We've entered the world of the spirit. Good, I'm there, recovered. Our next function is to grow in understanding and effectiveness. The operative word there is to grow. So I continue to change. I continue to to learn and 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 um, call out new ways to embrace my my new um, persona, to to 
to bolster it. And then it says, um, it's continue for a lifetime. That's good. Um, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear, the fourth step. And when these crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We ask God, step 11, to remove them, step 6 and 7. And here's where you talk. We discuss them with someone immediately, if and only if we have harmed someone. For me, that's what I do. What I usually do is I jump to the bottom and it says, I resolutely turn my thoughts to someone I can help. Resolutely means with focus and determination. And, you know, what I found is that over time, the things that used to make me ballistic don't bother me anymore. And I'm going to give you some examples now as I was requested. My son, who's now 22, but when he was, I think, 18, he came home from to my house, from my brother's house, with, um, he said, Uncle Don said it would be a good idea if I got a motorcycle. Now, my brother's kind of like a, a, an 18-year-old wrapped up in a 64-year-old's body. He's kind of a butthead. I mean, he's not. He has a master's degree in industrial engineering. He's, he just retired. He's had a very responsible job, and he's really smart. But he unfortunately has not one but two Harley Davidsons, and he told my son that it would be awesome if he did that. And the compulsive overeater, that was not popular. The mom department hated the idea, and the compulsive overeater was raging. And what I, I said nothing, but I want, what I wanted to do was stab my son in the eye and then go burn my brother's house down. And I did try to manipulate it. I called my brother and I said, could you, like a, could you knock off the motorcycle talk for, and then a horrible swear word sake? And he said, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. I ride bikes. And so that's too bad. And I thought, Ugh. and, you know, my son is pretty perfect. If, if I could change one thing about him, it would be that he tends to bump up against sensitive spots, you know, without knowing. And so periodically over the next few years, he said, I'm going to get a motorcycle. How do you feel about that? And I was like, ugh, you know, I hate you. I hate him. I hate everything. It's awful. And, you know, again, but, you know, this recovery, I live this this life. And finally, I said to him, you know, I just don't want you to get hurt. What I really wanted to say is, I, I hate you and I want to kill you. But I said, I just don't want you to get hurt. He said, of course, he's 18 or 19 or whatever, maybe 20 by that time. He said, I'm not going to get hurt. I'm not going to get hurt. And I said, I don't want you to end up as hamburger on the street. And he said, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to be careful. And finally, I got to it. The real thing, I said, if I could just ask you to be sensitive to how I feel, that would be great. And he looked right back at me and he said, yes, I can do that. And he has never mentioned it again. And who drove him to his motorcycle safety class? His mother. And who bought him his very expensive, you know, you can't go to Macy's and get one, a leather jacket for, for motorcycle riding, both of his parents, you know. And I actually sent my brother an email thanking him, telling him that I couldn't imagine a better mentor to keep my son safe on the road. And I got an email back, like my brother and I are pretty tight, but, you know, I wanted to put it in writing. And I said how grateful I was. And, um, and just like that, what was this horrible, you know, hump to get over was gone. And, um, and I'll give you another example. A, a few years ago, my husband and I were in, um, in our dining room, and he said something pretty innocuous. I just had a conversation before the meeting about this, so if that person's on the line, sorry. But he said something pretty innocuous, like talking about our neighbors maybe. You know, I don't, I don't I don't know what Bill and Mary Margaret are doing. That's their neighbors. And I was instantly, instantly, I swear to you, as enraged as I've ever been in my life. 
And I said, I better call my friend Christine. She's a lawyer, and she said there's a shark in her office for divorce, and I'm going to get a divorce. And the first thing that I did was I picked up my phone, and I hadn't dialed anybody, but I picked it up, and I could feel my blood pressure going down. And then, miraculously, I called six people at least. Like, I spent 45 minutes on the phone, and every single person that I called was there. And I didn't talk about my husband. I said, hi, how you doing? Just making outreach calls. And when I, when I hung up the phone, I felt better. And by the next day, and still today, I forgot what the whole thing was about. And I was a prisoner. I was a prisoner of my rage. You know, I was a prisoner. You know, nobody, I mean, people on this line understand and, and, and get this. But, oops, sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, um, to wrap up. People on this line know what this is about. But I was a prisoner. And today, I'm not a prisoner of my feelings. I am no longer in danger of excitement, anger, you know, fear. I don't, I'm not there anymore. I have one prayer. I can't, when I'm angry, I can't think of the seventh step prayer or the third step or whatever that stuff is. I have one prayer and my prayer goes like this. I don't like this. I don't want things to be this way. And the feeling that I get, it's not a voice, I guess. It's just a feeling is, I know, but I've got your back. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you very much, Nancy. You really did give a lot of yourself this morning and I appreciate you opening up like that with such a, such a powerful impact. Our next panelist this morning to present on the topic of anger, a dubious luxury, is Leslie W. from Tennessee. Good morning, Leslie. Good morning, Melanie. Can you hear me okay this morning? I can. Thank you for your service. Yes. All right. Thank you so much. Um, oh, anger, my favorite topic. Um, I'm Leslie W., a recovered compulsive overeater from Tennessee, and I'm really honored and privileged to speak to you all today. Anger. Um, So there is one person in my life which my anger has continually burned against and backfired on me over and over and over throughout my life. And that person is my sister we are two very different people um that noise is not coming from my line uh melanie just wanted to let you know um that is my sister we are very we are we really are different people um wired to communicate think and act in completely opposite ways um for a long time i tried to deny my anger I hid my anger. I covered it up with self-righteousness, judgment, passive aggressiveness, self-pity, and a host of many other defects of character. I've had the hardest time with this particular relationship ever since I was a little girl. I hesitate to even talk about this particular relationship today because of the extreme raw emotion that I feel around it. Um, And yet I know that my pain can be turned into an asset in the hands of God. And so I walk forward in this today with the trust that someone will be helped. Um, Being the older sister and labeled by the family as the the smart, talented, sweet one gave me a level of superiority over my sister from the start. She rebelled and if I did one thing, she did the opposite. 
She wanted her own identity not to be compared to me in any way. And looking back, I can understand that. Um, I really can. We set out on two opposite paths from the get-go. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure that we ever truly behaved like sisters at all. I'm not sure we ever learned to do that. I know I certainly didn't. We tolerated each other, but that was about the extent of it. And I was pretty wrapped up in my own life, my own self. It wasn't until we both started going after the same things in life when we got into adulthood that um, that things began to shift. I moved to New York. She moved to New York. I got married. I don't live in New York anymore, obviously. I got married. She got married. She had a child. I had a child. She started her own business. I started my own business. And I could be happy for her as long as I still felt as though I had the upper hand. Ooh, that, that's in its things to say. But just as soon as I felt she began moving into my territory, that's when my jealousy and anger began to burn. I believe, I believe um, that anger is the reason why anger is such a dubious. And I define dubious as not to be dependent on or trusted luxury because there is no way to control it. It just consumes us and it destroys everything in its path like wildfire. And even more dangerous is someone like myself who can conceal her anger with indignation, self-righteousness, and well-positioned acts of kindness, which aren't truly acts of kindness at all because they're really performed with the intent of scoring points and favor, earning favor in the eyes of others around me. My image is of the utmost importance here, after all. All of this is going on and happening behind the scenes, under the surface, and as an untreated addict, um, As an untreated addict, um, I'm, un- I'm unaware of the damage that I'm truly doing, nor do I really care. I felt completely justified in my hatred of her and the space and energy that it took and that I could put forth in regards to her was unlimited. I would talk about her with anyone who would listen, my husband being the one most negatively impacted by my obsessive thoughts and behaviors toward her. A real sisterhood, a real brotherhood, I knew not. I only knew competition, comparison, and hypocrisy. A series of events occurred last year, which brought a lifetime of strife and discord between the two of us to a head. And after much step work and praying, I made amends to my sister years ago before this even occurred. But what I didn't take into an account were my expectations. Expectations for her to reciprocate, for her to follow suit. I had visions of sitting on our porches together, sipping on our iced tea, 
watching our children play, I had a picture in my mind of me loving her and her loving me back and sharing intimate details of our lives with one another. Watching still, watching still Magnolias and braiding each other's hair. <laughs> what I didn't realize then and what has taken me a, such a long time to truly accept is the fact that she doesn't want to do those things with me. That she believes that we've never gotten along and we never will. As she spoke those exact words to me last Thanksgiving in my parents' kitchen. She does not want that type of relationship with me. Not to mention the obvious possibility to everyone else but me, apparently, that she perhaps is not even capable of it. I do believe that what has firmly halted any more anger from sprouting and taking root is the realization of my own selfishness and dishonesty after doing my inventory work, sometimes over and over and over again. I didn't realize until someone else lovingly pointed out to me that by me continually trying to force this relationship to exist within the confines of what I deemed it should be, I was essentially stoking those fires myself, not to mention lighting them, expecting her to behave as I insist she should is selfish. Believing that I am the arbiter of her behavior is dishonest. And the fears that I have are that I will be rejected, unloved, and ridiculed. My fears have come to pass in this relationship. And yet, I am still abstinent by the grace of God, still breathing by the grace of God, still standing by the grace of God. And my attention can now be given to those around me who truly need me and truly want me in their life. I don't need to force her or anyone else to love me the way I demand to be loved. I can let go finally. I have released her of the demands and the requirements which, which I held her to without her permission. I have set her free and in turn been set free myself. And I want to read to you before my time is up today a couple of passages from the 12 and 12. I have found the AA 12 and 12 to be particularly useful to me in these matters. Page 90 says, um, excuse me, page 92, says, finally we begin to see that all people, including ourselves, are to some extent emotionally ill as well as frequently wrong. And then we approach true tolerance and see what real love for our fellows actually means. It will become more and more evident as we go forward that it is pointless to become angry or to get hurt by people who, like us, are suffering from the pains of growing up. Such a radical change in our outlook will take time, maybe a lot of time. Not many people can truthfully assert that they love everybody. Most of us admit that we have loved a few, that we have been quite indifferent to many for as long for so long as they get, didn't give us any trouble, 
as the, for the remainder, well, we've really disliked or hated them. Although these attitudes are common enough, we AAs find we need something much better in order to keep our balance. We can't stand it if we hate deeply. The idea that we can be possessively loving of a few, can ignore the many, and can continue to fear or hate anybody has to be abandoned, if only a little at a time. We can try to stop making unreasonable demands upon those we love. We can show kindness where we had shown none. With those we dislike, we can begin to practice justice and courtesy, perhaps going out of our way to understand or help them. Whenever we fail any of these people, we can promptly admit it to ourselves always, to them also, when the admission would be helpful. Courtesy, kindness, justice, and love are the keystones by which we may come into harmony with practically anybody. When in doubt, we can always pause saying, not my will, but thine be done. And we can often ask ourselves, am I doing to others as I would have them do to me today? And with that, I'm going to pass. Thanks, Mel. Thank you very much, Leslie W. Very touching. Very touching, deep work. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie W. from Tennessee. Our third panelist this morning comes to us from Michigan, and her name is Nancy C. Good morning, Nancy C. Good morning, Melanie. Thank you for this opportunity. And Nancy P. and um, Leslie W., thank you for your service and your touching um, shares today. My name is Nancy C. and I'm gratefully recovered today by God's grace in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I am a miracle. Everyone on this line today is a miracle um, because we're all here living as God wants us to live. And if you haven't had a spiritual awakening yet, if you're working towards that or you don't know why you're on the line, and be grateful that you're here. We're not out eating pancakes someplace. And if you are, God has tapped you on the shoulder and said, let's try a different way, because he did do that to me and saved my life two years ago. Um, I was born angry. And the reason I was born angry was because I was born fearful. I was afraid from a very early age that I wasn't going to get what I thought I should get, and whatever I had, I was going to lose it. Big Catholic family, um, believe in a God that you go see every week, and um, God loves you, but you better be good because he's got his pen and paper out. And so I knew I was going to be found wanting no matter what I tried to do. And that was very fearful because I was already condemned by the time I was like six. But that fear just drove me, and I became very angry, first at myself, because I was never going to measure up to the rest of my siblings. I was never going to measure up to the rest of my friends, to, to anybody that I came in touch with. And that made me very sad, but also very angry at myself. And so I started to eat, and food was my constant companion. It gave me that luxury of feeling that, I'm okay. So every time I started to feel angry, instead of learning how to appropriately handle that, I would just eat. And that went on and on and on. If I look at my relationships for the first many years of my life, I did not have a relationship with God. I went to church and that was it. You know, it got really special when the holy smoke would go during high holy days or whatever. 
but I never had a relationship with God because I never got what I asked for. But I always asked for things like make me thin because I thought if I was thin, I would be happy. Um, God gave me exactly what I needed every step of the way in my journey. And I didn't see that till I got recovered and I had a spiritual experience and was totally rearranged. Anger, selfishness, self-pity, consume me. You know, like for those of you who are my age, you can remember the X-Files and, and that whatever it was, that black shit that would get on your feet and start going up through your body and then come out your eyes. That was me. That was my poison. That just drove me. And what did I do to that? How did I get around? How did I live? Oh, I forgot to start my time there. Melanie, I'm so sorry. I'm doing that right now. Um, I lived in a fantasy world. Everyone should have done exactly what I said, just like it says on page 60 to 63 in the big book. Do what I say and the world will be good. And we all know how that movie goes, right? I was the actor. I was the star of every show and got madder and madder when it didn't come off the way I wanted. But I knew don't get mad. Or if you did, hurry up and say you're sorry. Not because I was sorry for anything. It was because I wanted people to still talk to me, to still like me, because I wasn't done using them. That was my favorite lot in life, was to use people, spit them up, chew them out, and move on before they got to know me. Nobody in my, when I was growing up or in my whole career knew who Nancy Collada was. They knew who I wanted them to think or who I thought I was, you know, this wonderful professional, oh, so helpful. I helped so many people all with the agenda of that you owe me now. You owe me and you better show up when I need it. I want to talk about, I came into the rooms of OA in 2011 where when I got fired from a very high-powered job, and that story is really pertinent to me um, in my discussion today because it really summarizes everything that drove me and how this program has changed me. I befriended a woman um, in my career who I saw was very bright and was going places, and I latched my wagon onto her because I needed to show that I was amazing, that I was wonderful. She was my ticket to get there because, of course, I couldn't do things on myself. I had to have other people do it for me. So this woman raised, was brought up in the ranks. Um, she was younger than me, but brought up in the ranks of a very large international company and ended up being the COO and CFO of the company. And I followed her behind. I became her best friend. I went to her wedding in England when she was pregnant and had a difficult pregnancy. I would go to her house every week. I would bring her food. I'd send her cards. You get my drift? I am buying this relationship, and I am holding her hostage as being my savior in this job. I rise up the, the ranks, too, and I have a friend who's going to protect me. So I can start backing off on what I'm doing. She's telling me to do things. Eh, I don't want to do it. I'll get somebody else to do it and bother, you know, have everyone else do it under, and I was terrible to work for. I was absolutely awful to work for because as long as I looked good, as long as I kept getting a paycheck and could travel all over the world and be in magazines and be on TV shows, I was wonderful, right? But I did it at the expense of everyone else. I did it at the expense of my wife. My wife was my best friend. 
I love her dearly, but she was really my maid. She was my housekeeper. She got everything ready for me to go out on tour and be this wonderful person. I'd come home, ah, maybe I'd want to do something, maybe I wouldn't. And she loved me all the way through that. Fast forward and I got fired from this job and how could my best friend fire me? Oh my God, what a bitch. So you think I didn't hold court on that and pull in all my friends. I was devastated because my career was me. I had so many people coming to my aid. Yes, she's awful. They're terrible. How could they do this? Blah, 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 blah. I got a great exit package. Um, but I hated this woman. I was so angry. And then I just started bringing it out on everyone who would listen to me. I spewed it everywhere. And I had friends at that time, fair weather friends that would stand right behind me and go, yes, get madder, get madder, get madder. This poor woman tried to talk to me, whatever. I would have nothing to do with it. So I came into the rooms of AA and I had an agenda or OA and I had an agenda. I was going to prove that I could live without these people. And I got a food plan. I came from the vanity. I lost 65 pounds in a year and life was wonderful. People were like, oh my God, you're so great and blah, blah, blah. I worked the program. I did what I was told to do. Um, and I had to do a four step and I bitched about this woman and, you know, how I was sorry. And I, called her up and I, I want to talk about uncovered amends. I was not recovered. Um, I made amends saying, you know, I'm really sorry that um, I didn't let you talk to me and can we still be friends? And yes, she was like, fine. And we never talked because I was still angry. I hadn't made apologies for anything. I hadn't forgiven her for anything because I was just checking a box in my recovery. And I sat in the rooms of OA for eight years until 2020 when I was really going to give up and I was told to call into the vision for you line and I was just like I am desperate I have nothing else to do it was my last ditch effort and I heard what you people were telling me that there is a way and it's called the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and it is a program of recovery where I'll be spiritually rearranged and transformed into a person that lives happy, joyous, and free. Are you kidding? But I was so desperate, and I wanted what you wanted, that I found somebody who took me through the steps quickly and got me to that recovered state. I can look at that surrender. I see it every day, clear as I am, that I just said, God, I give up. Have me. And I am so... I'm so grateful for that moment, but it also makes me so sad that it took me 60 years till I found that. Um, but anyhow, when I got to the fourth step and really truly saw that as the linchpin of what was wrong with me and started looking at all of the people um, that I had resentments towards, this poor woman came up and my resentments were still huge and deep and, you know, all the stuff I did for her. And then I got to the third column, right? Our basic instincts. What is it that she was threatening that this whole situation threatened? It threatened my security. It threatened my self-esteem. It threatened my personal relationships because I didn't know how to have a relationship. All of those things were causing me to react the way that I did to this woman. And when I got to column four and seeing that I was scared to death and that anger was so misdirected and that really this woman 
was the most gracious woman in the world to me, and I had missed everything. She gave me an exit package that was unheard of in that company before then. She tried to set me up to be fine and to still have a relationship. She gave me my career. She gave me my chances. And what did I do? I was like, I want more. It's not good enough. You don't know what you're doing. People don't like you. I mean, I just derailed her and gossiped and complained and bemoaned. How could somebody have an employee like that, right? But that was me. I didn't know how to do anything else except for just be so angry. And when I saw that in the fourth step and that it was really me who was causing all of this, oh, my God. So I had to take a look at what I needed to do to right the ship, right? I looked at my character defects. I still look at them every day. In step six and seven, I become willing to say, I can't live like this anymore, God. I can't. Please help me. I really want to live in the sunlight of the spirit, and these defects are getting in my way. So really the defects of um, image management, of low self-esteem, that I'm not good enough, I fight that every day. But it started to transform as I started to do this real diligent work in steps six and seven. And then humbly asking God to take those from me because I can't do it, but it needed to go root and branch when he was ready. When I got to make those amends, my sponsor taught me to look at it from the other person's vantage point, right? And I really saw this woman. Can you imagine firing your best friend? Can you imagine that? How awful that was, what type of torment she had to go through. And seeing that and doing the amends and just saying, I was so sorry for not seeing any of that, just opened up my spiritual life into resolving that conflict. Now we have lunch every couple of weeks. We're going to have Thanksgiving together. We're back being friends. Not a hostage, we're friends. And we talk and we have good things. Um, step 10 keeps me doing that every day. I have to look whenever I'm disturbed, what is wrong with me? It's never with the other person. It's always with me. And I do a lot of 10 steps on just disturbances. I am unsettled. I need to figure out what my part is, and it always ends up with some type of fear. It might be a stupid little fear, but there are no stupid little fears because those are the little pebbles that become the rock, that become the boulder, that like roll me over. So 10 step has to be done always. Step 11, oh my God, I live in step 11. It's the cornerstone of my program, asking God for direction every day, and then asking him where I felt short, how I can be better and be of maximum service to him and my fellows every day. Giving this back, man, is the gift of everything. Um, I wouldn't change what I have today, and I love to give it back. I love to talk to people. I love to share what I've had because I truly have been rearranged spiritually and live today doing God's work, God's work instead of Nancy's work. The tapes that I have on how wonderful I am and everything else, I have to cut and step on every time they start talking to me. Every day I have to work on that. But every day I also can extend my hand to somebody else and pass along this great news, these 12 steps that have to be taken in order to get a spiritual awakening, to live happy, joyous, and free um, in our lives. And in my last minute, I would like to just quickly say um, 
my favorite part of the big book is on page 266-267 and the story he sold himself short. And this sums up me and my recovery. This last part of my life has had a purpose, not in great things accomplished, but in daily living. Courage to face each day has replaced the fears and uncertainties of earlier years. Acceptance of things as they are has replaced the old impatient chopping at the bit to conquer the world. I have stopped tilting at windmills and instead have tried to accomplish the little tasks unimportant in themselves, the tasks that are integral part of living fully. Where derision, contempt, and pity were once shown me, I now enjoy the respect of many people. Where once I had a casual acquaintance, all of whom were fair-weathered friends, I now have a host of friends who accept me for what I am. And over my AA years, I have made many real, honest, and sincere friendships that I shall always cherish. I'm rated as a, mod- as a modestly successful man. My stock of material goods isn't great, but I have a fortune in friendship, courage, self-assurance, and honest appraisal of my own abilities. Above all, I have gained the greatest thing in accord to any man, the love and the understanding of a gracious God who has lifted me from the alcoholic scrap heap to a position of trust where I have been able to reap the rich rewards that come from showing a little love for others and from serving them as I can. I went in my life from woe is me to wow is my God, and with that, I pass. Thanks, Melanie. Thank you very, very much, Nancy C. Nancy C. is from Michigan. And thank you also to Leslie W. from Tennessee and Nancy P. from Massachusetts. I am sitting here deeply touched by the vulnerability and the willingness that you three had in really digging into those corners of our mind, that twisted place, that peace that we have so strongly here in these rooms and went from, went from this level of what was a dubious luxury, a dangerous place for an addict like us to be, to a transformation. And you beautifully illustrated that, the miracle that is a promise and I'm, I'm just emotionally overwhelmed by your presentations today. Thank you very, very much for bringing that here. And we have an opportunity to archive it for others to be able to hear for eternity. Thank you. And we will be sure and ask each of our panelists for their contact meeting. So if you're looking for that, stay with us clear to the top of the hour after the recording has stopped so that you can get that information. The share ID number for today's Sunday special edition, November 13th, 2022, is 19636, 19,636. It might be one of those you want to tuck away so that you have it handy for re-listening to in the future and for paying forward. The lines are now open for questions. If you have a question of, of any of the panelists, please unmute your phone by pressing star 1 on your phone keypad. Offer your first name, the first letter of your last name, please. And once you've asked your question, please immediately press star one to remute your line again so that it's nice and quiet. What questions do you have today for any of our panelists? I'd love to take a list of names. Chris Chris S. S. I'm going to ask that you repeat that, please. I didn't quite catch the first two. The first two, please say something. Gabriel G. Something G. Gabriel. Gabriel. Thank you so much for helping me with that. And then there was another Susan. person just before Aaron K. 
Susan L. Did you say? Susan, Susan L. L. Thank you. Got, gotcha. Susan L. Mm-hmm. And I have Aaron K. Who else? Sue Chris from New Jersey. Sue's from New Jersey. I heard, I heard Chris, but I think somebody just before then. What was that? Chris, Chris S. from New Jersey. Gotcha. Sue's from okay. New Jersey. Sue's from New Jersey. Okay. Got it. Uh-huh. Melinda Kathy G. Melinda, what's your first initial then? H as in horse. H, okay, and then Kathy G. Let's go with those questions. That's a great start this morning. Everyone else, stay close because we'll probably have time for yours as well. But let's start with Gabriel, followed by Susan L. Gabriel, your question this morning. Hi. And where are uh, you from, perhaps? I'm from Florida. Oh, great. Excellent to know. Okay, thank you. And uh, I have just, after 46, almost 50 years of, uh, I don't know how I wound up throwing all this to the side, but within the last week, I've returned and I'm studying and I'm on phone calls like this. I'm on Zoom meetings and I'm doing everything I can to this time enter into the element that I didn't have in the past, which was. Uh, the group, the people, the support, uh, pretty much that beautiful testimony I just heard. And my question is, I'm somebody that has been in this this ring and this battle with compulsive overeating and morbid obesity, and all I've ever known is getting knocked out and uh, smelling the bottom of the mat. So... I find that the greatest battle I have, of course, is to continue to believe that there's hope. And everything I'm reading, everything I'm hearing, there's such a big element of what it means to have uh, the connection, the people, a sponsor. And uh, number one, finding a male sponsor where I live, I'm trying, but oh, I, 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 it's, it's really hard, and I'd like to find one. So if anybody knows a rock-solid man that has a – you know, rock solid recovery. I, I would love to have him call me. Um, but I guess my question is surviving now as I do the best that I can, and I am very encouraged. I'm very positive. Uh, I'm taking the required steps. Uh, but I guess the question is <laughs> when, when you've only known defeat, at the end of this tunnel, now I see this light and I say, all these people have wonderful hey, recovery. Gabriel, could you, if you wouldn't mind, just in the interest of time, would you be able to formulate your question real quick? Uh, how do I get a group and a sponsor? I'm trying the best I can and I'm having little to no success. Oh, you're looking for a sponsor this morning. Yes. Okay. Um, I, I yeah. How about I um, give you my telephone number at the end of the meeting? You hang tight, or get the telephone numbers of these particular panelists um, at the end of the meeting, and you can give each, any one of us a call. We probably have some connections for you for okay. later on. Okay. Would that That's be okay? Fine. Okay. That'd be wonderful. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you so much, Gabriel. So don't don't go too far. Grab our phone numbers up at the end of the meeting. 
Thanks. Okay, a person with a question for the panelists uh, according to what their presentation was today. Susan L. followed by Aaron K. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, this is Susan L. Compulsive Overeater, Ella's in Love. So the first, I think it was the first speaker was Nancy P. Mentioned something about God, and it, I got the feeling that it, initially she did not have a uh, a belief in God, and I just wondered how that evolved with her in program. I've I've been an atheist for forty, I mean my whole life in program forty years, and um, and I remain an atheist. My only HP is my higher self, or the program, or the fork in the road. So that's my question for a, in Nancy P. If she was the first speaker with the motorcycle. Thank you. Gotcha. Yes. Hey, Susan, would you be willing to give us your state before we move on to Nancy? Florida? Florida. Oh, thanks so much. Okay, great. D, for you. Want to press star one, please? Sorry about that. I thought I was unmuted. Okay, so that's a that's a good question for me. I am agnostic, and I um, I think that my agnosticism is what ended up allowing me to recover because I tried for a long time. Uh, I've been in the program, it'll be 52 years in January, and I tried from 1971 until 2017 to do this, to do quote unquote do away like with God. And, um, and it never worked. I mean, it didn't work. It worked sometimes for a little bit, but mostly it didn't work really at all. And once I embraced my agnosticism, and I got over the God hump, the problem that I had, like with not really believing in God. Um, I found, you know, water seeks its own path, but it always gets to the, where it needs to go. And, and so once I, you know, once my mind was chiseled open and I thought, I got to solve this problem or else, um, I got better. And I got better fast. And I got pretty, pretty, I wouldn't say completely better. I'll never be completely, totally better but I, I continue to get better every day and I had to embrace what I was and stop doing stuff that didn't work for me and um, and I, well, I was able to do that and I'll be happy to talk to you about it at length offline but um, I, I'm not the only one that has issues around that because everybody else who does I think they all call me so um, I would love to talk to you offline and um, the short answer is once I stopped doing what didn't work and started doing what did work it worked, and it worked well, and with that, I'll pass. Mm. Thank you very much for the question, Susan L., and for the answer. Hey, Aaron Kay, you're up next with your question, followed by Chris S. from New Jersey. Good morning, everybody. Aaron Kay recovered in Michigan. Um, I, I mostly want to ask a question just so I can thank the panelists for incredible shares. I mean, you guys each had me laughing, crying. It was awesome. Um, I, my question is actually for Leslie. Um, Leslie, I just so appreciated your deep honesty about your relationship with your sister, and I could definitely relate. And I feel like most of us probably have that one person, you know, in our life that's just tough. And um, my question is, you know, was it, I, I got the sense from what you were sharing, is that you know, this, it wasn't just a one and done, you know, you did one fourth step inventory and then suddenly, you know, you had, I mean, all of your anger at your sister just 
kind of dissipated. I get the sense that it, it's more like a continue, continue, continue. And so my question for any, for myself and anybody out there who kind of still continues to struggle, struggle with anger and resentment toward, you know, an individual that's coming up again and again, how, do, how did you approach that? How do you approach that? Um, that's my question. Thank you. Thank you, Erin, for your question. Leslie, that would be for you initially. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. And yes, you're right. Um, it was not a one and done. You know, it, it, it continues to be an area that I work on um, with God. And, you know, I would love to tell you that, yeah, I did a four-step. I made my amends, and now we rode off into the sunset. Everything's great. But the reality is that it doesn't always work out like that, you know, um, because we can't control what the other person says or does and how they behave towards us. Um, and so, you know, I will say that the good news is it has gotten the way that I handle it right? And the way that I deal with it and the way that it affects me has improved greatly, greatly, okay? Um, and so when this anger, when it does come back up for me, when it starts to boil up again, I have developed those muscles over time to dive straight into my to my work, to my program work. I have my inventory sheets. I know what to do. I, I have a sponsor. I have a lot of wonderful other fellows in recovery who help walk me through this and tell me the truth. It's not easy to hear the truth sometimes, a lot of times. Or it isn't easy for me anyway. Um, but this area is constantly evolving and, and growing um, and changing for me, but in a good way. And I feel like God has given me the ability to sort of detach myself finally from, um, from her reactions and her behaviors to me. I'm somewhat removed from it, almost like I've been placed in a position of neutrality. And it isn't always like that, though. I mean, trust me, there are, like, I guess, I guess what I want to say is that, you know, there's no formula for this, for me, for this particular person that works um, like a one and done. It's just, a, it just doesn't work that way. Just like my abstinence and my recovery is a constant breathing, ever-evolving thing. And so I just dive straight into my work. Um, but I used to gossip. I used to just go whoever I could find and just, like, badmouth her. I used to complain about how badly she treats me. I used to wallow in self-pity and depression. I used to um, take it out on my husband. I mean, there were just so many behaviors that I used to engage in that I don't engage in anymore. So to me, that that's the progress, not perfection. So I passed. Thank you very much, Erin Kay, for your question. Next up for a question this morning is Chris S. from New Jersey, followed by Suze. Hi, this is Chris S. And 
<clears throat> I believe the next uh, speaker, which is Suze, is from New Jersey. I'm from the lovely, lonely state of Wyoming. And uh, my uh, question um, is has to do with something that Nancy P. had said. But first I wanted to thank you, Melanie, and also the panelists. This has been a wonderful recognition of an issue that has been ongoing my whole life, especially um, prior to uh, coming into program. Anger and anger management has been an issue in my life for way too long. People talk about fear and how fear is their issue. I haven't discovered that yet in my life, how fear is related to my anger, but I'll get there eventually. I'm still new in OA. And listening to wonderful speakers like today, I'm sure that um, you're going to help me get there faster than my own method. Um, uh, so my um, question gets down to what Nancy had said about her step 10. And she and I, I don't know if I just misunderstood. Nancy, you said something about how um, the uh, step 10, your resentment, you don't look at it as a resentment. You use a different perspective. And I, I just kind of missed that whole thing. I'd love to be able to understand it a little more clearly. Thank you for your time. Hi, Nancy P. Um, I'm just getting my book to see what I possibly could have said that was useful. <laughs> um, okay, step 10. Sorry. Get here. So that first paragraph of step 10 um, says, what are we doing here? Sorry. It says, um, our next function, I mean, um, uh, page 86, Nancy, get there. Oh, there it is. Um, this thought brings us to step 10. So, I mean, basically, I don't really sit in resentment that much. I can't stand it. Anything that I have a very sensitive BS detector and anything that threatens it, threatens its equilibrium, even if it's like a hint of a memory or a hint of a thought in the future of a gleam and in the eye of somebody else down the street or around the corner, I can't stand it. And I, and I immediately um, confront it. And the 10th the step tells me that, you know, we continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. So I'm ever watchful for those things. In fact, I do an 11-step inventory every single night, 365 days a year. I just don't forget it. I take life-saving medicine in the morning and life-saving medicine, two different pills, one in the morning, one in the, uh, in the evening. You know, I'm old, so I take that. And um, I have forgotten or not taken that medicine more often than I have not done my 11-step inventory. And to me, it doesn't really matter what the resentment is or what if I'm mad about something. None of that. I don't care about any of that. These are all feelings that I am in danger of getting them getting out of hand. And how do I keep them corralled? By doing this, pro, this whole process. And the step 10 is actually four through nine, wash, rinse, and repeat. So the most important thing, that's why I say I don't spend a lot of time calling people up and saying, I have a 10th step. Will you take? I don't. I really don't do that. I mean, very occasionally, very occasionally, if it's something just won't go away. But the prescription, for, my opinion is the prescription in step 10 is resolutely turning my thoughts to someone I can help. Because, you know, the previous speaker, the previous answer, I think that Leslie said is that she does it again and again and again. I mean, 
we don't we're not cured you know we are this is our our medicine is that we do this over and over again and so the magical elixir and an elixir is a magical thing that has that has that you take that has magical healing properties in my opinion is fellowship because nobody you know nobody else but another compulsive overeater of the hopeless variety preferably the recovered you know the recovered kind will understand what i'm what my beef is and um so i continue to do that over and over and over again i have had trouble with my eyes and i um I went to a specialist. I'm lucky enough to live near a world-famous eye infirmary and with excellent specialists, Harvard Teaching Hospital, very good hospital. And I went to the specialist, and she said, I know what the problem is. It's this. And I'm going to do this for you here, and I want you to take this medicine, a drop in each eye twice a day, and see me in a month. And I did that. I came back in a month, and she said, how do you feel? And I said, great. And she said, perfect. That's the cure. So the cure is, the cure from a doctor said something that I do every day, twice a day. (laughs) So that's what I have to do. I have to take this medicine for the rest of my life. And I like the metaphor because all of the steps that I have to do, all of them, I have to be honest. I have to say it out loud. I have to put my pride in my back pocket. I have to, you know, I have to approach things from an entirely different angle. I seek counsel from others. I do what this book says every day and I get all the promises. They have come true for me in spades, in the highest suit. I live a life that is packed, packed full of amazingness. I got up at 6 o'clock this morning, and I drove almost 100 miles to come and pick my son up. I'm sitting across the street from his dorm in my car because he wants to go to a weightlifting competition in Boston. So i got to go drive all the way back and then do it again tonight. You know, that's what I have time to do in my life today because I stay on top of this stuff. So, again, uh, um, we'll be giving our contact information at the end. If you want to talk more about it offline, I'm happy to do that. That'll pass. Thank you very much for your question this morning. Next, that would be Chris's question, Chris S. from Wyoming. Um, next up for a question this morning is Suze S. from New Jersey, followed by Belinda H. Hi, this is Suze from New Jersey. Um, thank you very much for a very, very scary topic. I figured <laughs> I had a lot of confidence about this um, in my home of origin. My anger and my getting one over people is the only way to survive. I don't want to go through life this way um, as much as, as being mean to people. Um, it affects all of my life, including a relationship that was I just blew apart after two and a half years and um, and my work as well because um, people can be kind of unreasonable at work but it doesn't give me the right to rage at them or get back at them or be resentful with them. I need to be an adult and at 67 I think it's time. <laughs> anyway, my question is um, how do I acknowledge when I have a problem in a relationship with that person, um, knowing that they may not care to hear it, um, especially if it's just foisted on me, um, unawares? Zip the lip is a very good con- a very good slogan, but it's hard to remember when someone feels like I'm being threatened. And the other question I have is, how do I go forward? 
to uh, have, I, I spelled it relationship, R-E-A-L-A-T-I-O-N-S-H-I-P, the relationship, real relationship with people. Um, I did that <laughs> subconsciously. Um, and if uh, things aren't working out or aren't agreeable, how do I approach uh, that without needing to be what I thought is confident and other people think as um, forbidding or, or overwhelming or not just assertive but uh, aggressive. Thank you. And uh, by the way, I'm six Thank months Thank you so much. Absent. I'm six months absent. And I'm new. Congratulations. Good for you. Thank you. So, yeah, thank you so much. I think we got your two questions there very well. I wondered if maybe we would start out this morning with uh, Nancy C. From, from Michigan, perhaps answering that, and we can move on to the others if we need more clarification. Hey, thank, thanks, Melanie. And um, Suze S., thank you for your question. Um, you know, it says, the big book tells me that when there's a disturbance with anybody, it's with me, um, and I have to find out what is within me that is causing me to react to somebody the way I do. So 10 steps for me are very important. Um, And really trying to own my side of the street and realize what other people think and how they act towards me is really none of my business. And I know that sounds very high, mighty, and lofty, but it is so true. I think I'm the center of the universe and I'm not in anyone's mind, but I can't begin to see that they don't see that unless I really get down with my God and get honest with what's going on with me. And it's usually that I feel left out or I feel unloved or not enough. Um, the pause, I, six, six months abstinence, um, I don't know where you are in your step work, but going to God is the most important thing that I do in a day. When I'm in doubt, I take a breath and ask God to direct me, just like in our morning meditation, that we ask him to direct our thinking and have it free from selfish, self-seeking, and dishonest um, thoughts. That normally helps me just live with each other um, in the way he intended. And with that, I pass. hope that helped you, Suze. Thank you very much. For the question, Suze. Let's move on then to um, Melinda H.'s question this morning. What question do you have this morning for our panelists? Melinda H., and then we'll follow that with Kathy G. Hi. I think this would be for Nancy P. Um, My son, I have one son who's now 31, and he seems to be creating distance uh, between us. And uh, I, I'm i angry about that, and I can't. <clears throat> so I, I, I had it better formulated in my head, but any uh, guidance there you would have. I feel your pain. I mean, I can say this. Nobody in my life cares what I think or does what I say. Nobody. I mean, sometimes their their plans fall in with my plans, but mostly no one cares what I think or does what I say. And all that I can do is shut up and keep swimming. I can't afford to have my feelings own me. And today they don't. You know, my daughter, more than my son, um, 
um, not that she creates distance. Um, hold on, he's actually calling me. Let me just tell him. Um, I'll call you later. I'm in the car. He probably sees me across the street. Anyways, um, you know, she doesn't. She's not. Doesn't do what I want. Nobody does what I want. And I cannot. My my alternatives are to go on to the bitter end or accept spiritual help. That's what the book says. That's what I have to do. And so all I can do is the same thing that I always do. In other words, what the book says, in other words, we treat it like they're talking about sex, but we treat it like all the problems are treated the same. We throw ourselves the harder into helping others. That's what I do. That's why I say to people whenever they call me, you know, we'll talk about it. I'll give them my impression or my insight or whatever help I can give. And then I say, my assignment to you is for you to call a bunch of people and not talk about yourself and do it until it feels better. And that's what works for me. I mean, you know, that's what works for me. I I just, you know, I don't have any other choice except to do what the book says. And the book says there's nothing before thinking of other people. So I take what I get. You know, if my, my son comes home from college, Thanksgiving week, he says he's going away for the week. He has a week about a week off. And I said, well, are you going to be home at all? He said, yeah, I'll be home on the day. And that's it. Now I got to take what I get. I got to enjoy him that day. And luckily, that was... Because I practice this and practice it and practice it, even when I don't feel like it, that was fine. I'm thrilled that I'm going to see him for a couple of hours on Thanksgiving. I'm so happy. I don't care if he goes away. I'll probably wish him well, you know. I'm sure, I'm sure I will wish him well. But all his friends, they love me too. So they'll, you know, they'll come and say goodbye with him. And that's the only thing that I can do is keep doing the same thing that I was told to do in the beginning because I used to be angry that, Whatever, pick your poison, you know, like I was angry that, you know, my garden wasn't weeded and, and I was angry that my dinner wasn't cooked or whatever it was, like anything, you know, nothing was going my way. And now, today, my feelings don't own me. They don't get to dictate. They don't dictate how I, what I say and do and how I act. They just, they're just necessary to, you know, for me to be a human being, but they don't own me anymore. And the only way to get there is... Surrender, 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 and practice, 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 and that'll pass. Thank you, Melinda H., for your question this morning, um, and thanks, Nancy. The uh, last question for today, I was just looking at the time, probably we'll run short here, would be from Kathy G. Kathy G., your question this morning, star one. Kathy G., are you still with us this morning? Star one. Oh, so sorry, Melanie. I was talking and muted. Um, I, it's Kathy G., and I just wanted to thank the panelists. And uh, this question is also for Nancy P. I was just curious. You had said that you made a decision not to say you were sorry or to apologize to your son and daughter. I was just curious what got you to that place. Thank you. Sure. I had to make amends. I mean, that's what the tenth, the ninth step says, made direct amends to those we had harmed. So I had to bite the bullet and tell my kids. I mean, they were older, you know, I don't know, what, five or six years, five years ago. Um, so they were 17 and 15 or I don't know, whatever it was. I, I made direct amends. But I thought about it carefully. And, you know, I was told to write an ideal. What kind of a mother do I want to be? And so I wrote it down. 
And I don't want to be a yelling mother, nor do I want to be a groveling mother that's always saying she's sorry. What I want to be is an effective mother who loves her kids, whose kids feel that they can come to her and tell her anything without, and or do, make mistakes in their lives. Like, my job is to bear witness to them, to those I would help, right? And I want to bear witness. I want my parenting to be a way that they can, that, that to be something that they can depend on positively. And I decided that I had said, I had apologized. I'm so sorry I yelled at you. Mommy's so sorry. Or, I'm, you know, as they get older, I'm sorry I, I was out of line. And like that is like if you hit a kid often enough, they don't even feel it anymore. And that's what yelling is, hitting, verbal hitting. So I decided that I wasn't going to use those words because they didn't mean anything coming from me. I've lost the privilege of using those words, sorry and apologize when I make amends, especially among in the, my closest circle, my family. And and so I said, you know, in this situation, I yelled at you, and that must have felt terrible. And I, I understand that it feels terrible because I would have hated that too. And I just want you to know that I'm I'm going to try my very best not to do that. I made this decision consciously because I don't want to be that kind of a mother. It's always, I don't want to be codependent on, you know, whether or not they forgive me. You know, I hoped for the best, and, and they're, my kids are both great kids, and they, they love me, and they have forgiven me, and... and they don't even remember that woman like that. So, um, yeah, I don't find those words to be helpful when I'm making amends. And many of my amends are living amends because even that, sometimes I've beaten that horse to death, you know, <laughs> with trying to say, use words that aren't apologies. So I try to act in a way that is loving and accepting, um, you know, with them. And again, uh, if you want to talk about it more offline, I can, I'd be happy to do that. Thank you so much for the question this morning, Kathy G. from Illinois, and all of the answers today. And I just wanted to say one more time, thank you. Thank you for all that you offered of yourselves today, Nancy P., Nancy C., and, and Leslie W. It was clearly a, clearly a deep dive into the personal journey of your transformation and the miracles that constantly abound in these kinds of areas of reconciling relationships and families over time. And the work is ours. The internal work is our transformation to be able to live in harmony in these situations and to continue to do so as we sometimes reintroduce ourselves to these kinds of things. Thank you very, very much. And I wanted to remind everybody we will get their contact information at the conclusion of this meeting, but we will now close with a reading from page 164 of our big book. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and we will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you.